I'm Zivy Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Please sign up for my newsletter at zivyowens.com for updates on podcast guests and lots of live events. Today's episode has been sponsored by Good Pods. It's a really amazing app where you can follow your smartest, funniest, most curious podcast junkie friends and other people you admire to see what podcasts they're listening to, and it's all by episode. So I know I have my own podcast, but even I find myself overwhelmed by how many episodes there are of other podcasts and what I should listen to next. So Good Pods is still in beta, and they're looking for testers who will give them honest feedback. So you can go to Good Pods on the App Store or Google Play and check out which podcast your friends are listening to. And by the way, go on there and show them that you're listening to my podcast. That would really be awesome. So anyway, Good Pods was founded by a friend I used to work with many moons ago in, I guess, 1999, which really ages me here. But anyway, JJ Ramberg and I used to work together at a big company called Idealab. If anybody heard of that, she was with the site called cooking.com and I was with Idealab. And now she started Good Pods, among many other endeavors that she's done. Um, and this she's done with her brother, Brad Ramberg, who was also at Idealab with me. So all comes full circle. So anyway, thank you to JJ and Brad and everybody uh, at Good Pods for sponsoring this episode and for making a new searchable listening tracking thing for podcasts, which is going to be super helpful in helping people find great podcasts, hopefully like mine. (laughs) Thank you. I'm excited to be doing a Skype interview today with Beth Kolb, the author of Nobody Will Tell You This But Me. Beth is an Emmy-nominated writer for Jimmy Kimmel Live and actually wrote for the Emmy Awards in 2012 and 2016, and she wrote for the Academy Awards in 2017 and 2018. She regularly wrote for The New Yorker's Daily Shouts and received a WGA Award in 2016. She currently lives in Los Angeles with her husband and baby. Welcome, Beth. Thanks so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thank you for having me on this wonderful show. (laughs) I really appreciate it. No, No problem. So nobody will tell you this but me. Can you please tell listeners what it's about and what inspired you to write it? Sure. This book is about my beloved grandmother, and I was inspired to write it because she started telling me her life story from the time I was a baby. And she passed away in 2017. And in an effort to feel close to her again and to bring her back, I decided to tell her life story in her own words, in her voice. And so for me, it was partially a grief processing exercise and a cathartic way to reconnect to the woman that I loved so much. And tell me about, so Bess was recently on an Instagram live I just did for the coronavirus special, basically. (laughs) So I'm making her repeat this in case you miss this. This will come out later. But talk to me about the moment at your grandmother's funeral where you wrote a eulogy in her voice and then realized how well you could capture it. Yeah. I mean, the the real moment when when I realized that maybe I am able to channel her in a way that is meaningful to the people who really knew her best was right after she died. I I was given the task of delivering a eulogy at her funeral. And I tried several different versions of speeches. And I remember feeling really frustrated that they were just sort of platitudes. And the way that we talk about death can feel almost trite sometimes because we stick to a script and we have a certain vocabulary in discussing the deceased. And I found the way to be most authentic about it and the way to really honor her and really be true to her was to deliver the eulogy. And so I spoke about 
what she would think of her funeral in her voice to my family. And it was such a sad day. The fact that she was a very, very old woman at her passing doesn't at all, I think, diminish the enormity of her loss and and how very tragic it was. So everyone was upset. No one was coming in ready to laugh. Of course, this is a funeral. I, I, I skipped mascara. And <laughs> by the end of the eulogy, my family was wiping away laughter tears because I knew how my grandmother would have reacted to everybody coming out, having to get dressed, having to figure out what to wear, what to say. And so I just sort of wisecracked as her. And through this sort of family roast, I brought her back to the people who needed her the most. And so I realized, wow, I, I, I do have her voice. I'm able to bring her back. And maybe there's a bigger literary project here. And that's what the book is. Wow. And it's so funny too. I mean, your grandmother is such a, like a spitfire, you know, you can, and you, you really did. She is so real, like jumps off the pages. I mean, I can't imagine she's actually different than how she seems. You know what I mean, I mean, I went through a lot of her old voicemails. I saved every voicemail. I still have, we're on Skype, so I can show you. But in my voicemail, you'll see oh, my son's pediatrician and then Grandma <laughs> Florida, Grandma Scarsdale, Grandma, Grandma, Grandma. It's it's just, Aww. I don't know if this is yeah, coming up, see. but it's all... Wait, I'm going to take a picture. My- I'm taking a picture of you doing just that. That's so amazing. Wow. It's just it's just her voicemails. And I, I, I think I'm such a technophobe that I... I know that even though they're on a cloud, allegedly, the, the act of deleting them from my phone is something I, I can't do. So I, I have all of these voicemails. I have so many real artifacts of her voice and listen to them to try to bring her back. But also, this is a woman who I spoke to almost every day since I was born. That's not hyperbole. She, she really did come up and help raise me when both of my parents were working full time when I was a very, very new baby. And so I almost feel like I'm a AI bot that can generate my grandma because I've listened to her so much that I can almost have the algorithm for Bobby Bell and decide how she would react to a certain situation just because she was so close to me in her life that after her death, I feel like she's still here. And so yeah, I I, I bring her back in the way that I think is most authentic to her, which is hilariously funny. She, I'm a comedy writer. I hang out with comedians. I hung out before the apocalypse. I hung out with comedians all the time. But my grandma is still one of the funniest people I've ever met. She is somebody who would deliver a line with this sort of arched eyebrow where she would know what she was saying would just totally knock you flat on your back. She knew she was funny. And so I think that the fact that the book ends up being funny is very much true to who she was. So one of the things I found really interesting in the story was the role of your mother in all of this. So you go into detail about your grandmother's sort of difficult relationship with your mom when she was growing up. And then you talk about the closeness with your grandma. So what did your mom, how did your mom respond to this book? Has she, like, did she read the book? Like what? Yes. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure she yeah, did. No, that's a great question. My mom was actually the primary source for the book. When I was writing it, I would call my mom at all hours being like, mom, tell me the story again about when you tried to sue your school board. Tell me the story about when you left at age 16. Tell me the story about when you started sleepwalking. Tell me about grandma going away for three months to Europe when you were, she was really on the other end of the phone through the writing of the book to give me facts. When I needed fact-checking, my mom was my best resource and a true primary source and witness to my grandma's life. So obviously she knew I was writing 
the book and would supply me with very personal details about her relationship with my grandma as I was writing, which isn't to say that when she picked up the manuscript for the first time and started reading it, it was easy for her. In fact, she made it through two pages before crying and putting it down and saying, that's grandma, I can't do this. And so eventually I, I just sort of said, mom, this is a purely legal situation now. You need to read the book as you know, it's about you, but she did. And she, I, I, you know, I can't, I know what she said to me, but my mom loved the book. And I think she appreciated that the book was true to their relationship. And often I think it speaks to something we were discussing earlier about how we talk about the dead. It's easy to lionize and to idealize the deceased, but my grandmother, as fabulous and inspirational as she was, was a real person and a flawed person. And I think the biggest regret and flaw of her life was her relationship with her only daughter, my mom. And so including that tough relationship in this love story about a grandmother and granddaughter, I think just adds a dimension to who she was that I think keeps her relatable, but also is just true to who to who she was as a person. Your book makes me want to try to do the same thing for my grandmother's voice. <laughs> like Totally, like, like, you should. No, no, I mean, I don't want to copy you, but it, it's just like, it's such a great way to give a tribute to somebody that you love, especially someone with such a distinctive voice. And it's also like, it wasn't just about your relationship with her. This is This could have been written as like a family saga, intergenerational, whatever, because you included so much background from... Europe to the book, like riding the boat to America to like the illnesses. I mean, there's so much history in it too. And it's, it was literally like, as I was reading it, I was like, oh my gosh, that's who this, that's how this woman like came to be. Like, you know, I, yeah. like, like without, anyway. So did no, you? No, I think it, that's such a part of it. It is an immigrant story. It's a story about the full scope of a life. It's not just our relationship. It's it's her origin story. It's her superhero origin story. And I don't think it would be copying it at all if you want. I would be so thrilled if this book set off a chain reaction of people writing in the voices of the women who matter to them as a way to understand them better and a way to fully flesh out their relationship with that woman. I found it to be just as a writing exercise, really therapeutic. But I think it, you know, especially if we have all of this time now, why not? Why not get into it and connect with the people who you can't see by writing as them? It sounds crazy, but it did make me feel very close to the person that I lost. No, I love that. Maybe maybe it could be an interesting exercise. Totally. I'm up for it. I'll try it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, there was also this line about your, so her love story with your grandfather also was so like vibrant and real. And she said something, well, you said something in her voice, but it's as if she said, if I could see one thing for the rest of eternity, it would be your grandfather laughing. That just made me want to cry. I mean, really, I might cry now. It's just the sweetest. And he told you at the service that it sounded like she was actually there too. What what has happened with your relationship with him since her loss? My grandfather is the person who has experienced her loss most profoundly and acutely. There's, I've, I've seen various people grieve throughout my, my life. I've never seen anybody grieve with the, the sort of vehemence and, and presence of my grandpa. He misses her every day in a very real way and has built rituals around grieving her that are part of his personal story for him to tell 
But I will say that the book for him is a way for him to connect with her. And a few days before it was released, I was walking with my son in a park nearby our house. And I got a call from my grandpa's cell phone, which is really an in case of emergency thing. And I remember, you know, sort of giving the baby to my husband and picking it up. And he called and he just said, thank you for doing this. Thank you for giving her to so many people. So even though the book was something that was personally healing, not he, there's no way for him to heal from her loss, but it was a way to be closer to her in a way. He was so thankful that other people would fall in love with her. And that's something that I wasn't expecting, but it was something that really blew me away because I think when you love somebody, you feel like the whole world should love them too. And for my grandpa, feeling this private, daily, lonely loss of this love of his life for 60 years, knowing that other people would love and grieve Bobby as well, made him feel less alone. And so it almost feels like every person who reads the book is joining the club with my beloved grandpa and in solidarity is missing her with him, which makes which makes me feel like I've I've finally done something to help. You've done a mitzvah. I mean, serious. I mean, that's I hope so. You have. I mean, there's like what you should do now. You need to do like a little like Facebook group for your grandfather and like everybody who reads it should literally go in and like send him little notes and right? Something that, you know. I should definitely do that. That's a great idea. Like it I, should, I, I was thinking about even putting a P.O. box for him that people could write letters saying that they, or uh, maybe I would go through them first and then I could send him the pictures. Or there even, should be a way, I think. Even just do an email address and yeah. ask people to send him a note about what part, you know, what quote of hers like resonated with him the most or what they fell in love with. And then he could just read those emails every day. That's, a great idea. I'm going to talk to my mom about this and then talk to my grandpa about it and see what he wants. But we're all isolated now and lonely. My grandpa has been living in essentially the isolation of the heart for for years. So anything that brings us all together, I feel like is what we need. Oh, that's so Yeah, sad. that's a great idea. Oh my gosh. Yeah, but it's also, but it also, I feel like writing and writing a book like this is an act of joy as much as it is out of grief. It's a way to feel connected to someone who's gone and bring them back. And so I feel like every time a reader picks this up and is able to delight in everything that my grandmother delighted in, is able to laugh at voicemails that she left, laugh at conversations that she had with me, that's bringing her back. That's that's celebrating her. Absolutely. Um, so how did you get into writing to begin with? How did you end up? I mean, I, I, I followed your history through how you told it in these little clips, but how did you end up on the gym, writing for Jimmy Kimmel and the Academy Awards and now this book? And Yeah, I mean, I started writing. I was a writer from the time I was in kindergarten when I, I wrote my own version of a, a Madeline book. For, it was called Madeline at the Ballet, and it almost rhymed. <laughs> but it was it was something that I was very serious about. I read the I read the Madeline book and I said I would like to I would like to contribute a Madeline book and and I wrote it and it ended with the page and then one day she was a star and then she owned a salad bar. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and ever since and it's that's a line that my mom and I repeat to each other whenever I'm like oh I have a deadline I don't know if I can do this she would go and then one day she was a star and then she owned a salad bar which is to say you are always a writer. You were you were always a writer who was at first unintentionally very funny, and then by profession uh, required to be funny. But I think 
having that sort of bug in me from a very young age and that drive in me from a very young age is what kept me in this thankless and crushing profession that I'm in, (laughs) knowing that there's something in me that is just saying, sure, but you are a writer is something that I think a lot of writers can relate to. I got my professional start in writing just basically the only way I could, whoever would hire me is who I wrote for. And when I graduated college, I got an internship at GQ magazine. I don't know anything about men's, still don't, but I certainly was excited to be paid a dollar a word to write. And so I ended up profiling comedians and actors for GQ and doing little interviews with them and little write-ups about very small things for GQ's culture blog. And in interviewing comedians and interviewing filmmakers, I remember thinking, okay, I would like to be one of those people one day. But for the meantime, I am a journalist. I will interview. And so I kept taking journalism gigs. I ended up writing for Wired magazine in San Francisco. I wrote freelance for a whole host of places while just basically making rent. And, you know, I I basically never said no to a job. I would write for anything. I even did like reviews of VRBOs for a job. I, I would do, I would take any gig. I believe that to be a good writer, you really just have to write all the time. It's a muscle. You just have to keep doing it. And so I did. Eventually when I was at Wired, I was a fact checker, which is a really creatively antithetical job. You're basically a stick in the mud replying to real writers going, unfortunately, according to the abstract of this paper, or um, I understand you have notes on this. I would love to see some verification. It was crushing. And so as a side project, I started tweeting. I started this sort of comedy Twitter account that was just for my friends. It was just my observations, my voice, a fun side thing, no big deal. One tweet blew up got noticed by this comedian, Rob Delaney, who has a fabulous show on Amazon called Catastrophe, which everybody should see. And he retweeted it. Wait, what did the tweet say? You know what? This is awful. I don't even remember. It was just (laughs) one of the many. I would write like two tweets a day, and this was one of them. And he favorited it, which was before, I don't know, starred it, hearted it, I don't know. And then gave me a follow Friday, which is something that happened on Twitter a long time ago. It said super funny person alert, best bell, which is and was my Twitter handle. And overnight, I started getting hundreds of followers. I think I had like 500 followers from my like 30 college friends. And then all these SNL and Letterman and Family Guy people started following me. And so I had this secret life as fact checker by day, like good studious journalism girl, and then secret comedy person on the internet. And this went on for a couple of years. And eventually one of the people who followed me is this incredible journalist and comedian. Her name's Nell Scovell. She's a contributor to Vanity Fair and also had been a Letterman writer and a Simpsons writer. And she said, come to LA, stay on my couch. I want to introduce you to a bunch of people. And so I did. And I met these Family Guy and Simpsons writers and went, oh my God, this could be my life. I could be a real TV writer. Then I went back to San Francisco for a year and forgot about it until one day Nell sent me an email saying, Kimmel is looking to hire a writer, submit a packet. And so I watched 10 episodes of Jimmy Kimmel Live. I hadn't really seen much of the show. I knew Jimmy Kimmel. I was a, a, a TV personality. I was a fan, but I watched a bunch of shows. 
And then I wrote a show in Jimmy's voice from top to bottom, the whole monologue in paragraph form, which is not what a packet is. A packet is a bunch of pages of jokes. But I did basically what I did in the book to Jimmy. I was like, okay, I will just write in the character of Jimmy Kimmel and do jokes about the news that way. They called me in view. I left the interview. I called my mom from the Zara on Hollywood Boulevard and said, I think I just got a job. And then I, it's eight years later. Oh my God. So, yeah. So that's the long winded, sorry, that was a very long way. I loved it. I was riveted. Oh, okay. I loved, you're a great storyteller. Oh, that's, that's how. Then that led to Oscars and Emmys and things like that. Oh my gosh. So when you write for Jimmy Kimmel, is it one of, is it like a writer's room situation where you all get together and? So it's a very solitary practice writing for late night. You write alone on your computer and submit jokes to a writer's assistant. And then Jimmy goes through and picks the jokes and sketches that will work for that day. And then we all come together and punch up and work collaboratively. But the beginning of the day and the bulk of our work is done individually. What if you're just not feeling funny? What if you're in like a really bad mood? You know what? I would say 99% of the days, that's how you wake up and feel. And by (laughs) the end, you just have that cursor blinking on your Microsoft Word document. And by the time the joke deadline hits, you somehow have filled out the page. I can't explain it. You just, it's just a muscle and you have to do it. You know, it's, it's, you just sort of punch in, write your jokes, send it and live to tell the tale. Oh my gosh. So then when did you write this book at night or when did you do this? No. So I wrote it only during, I couldn't write, well, I, I, I couldn't do it. I write for a living and then had to write this book, wanted to write this book. And so I couldn't do it at night. I did it only over our hiatuses when the show wasn't filming. So I could completely turn off my TV writer brain and just be my author self. And so I wrote it in these discrete chunks of two weeks at a time. We have eight weeks off a year. I took two years and would do the bulk of the writing during those hiatuses and then editing and conceptualizing and thinking about structure during the work year, but the real pure writing would happen during hiatuses. So you didn't really get a break. (laughs) No. And then I got pregnant. (laughs) I mean, you were married. Uh, It didn't come out of the blue. Oh, yeah. Oh, I married to the, married to my college boyfriend who I moved to San Francisco for. And so it all paid off, ladies. Um, But, uh, (laughs) and that story is also in the book. But uh, I. Wait, side question. Did your grandmother end up coming around? Because I feel like she was so negative about your husband in the beginning. You were so funny about it. Well, you know, she was just mystified as to why anyone would marry a non-Jew or date a non-Jew. But in her mind, date and marry went hand in hand. And she was absolutely right. The only person who's a bigger fan of my husband than myself and my baby was my grandma. My grandma loved him so much, would take his side routinely, would ask to talk to him, which okay. is done yeah. talking to him. Yeah. She loved him and he loved her. And they would often, they were on the same wavelength about a lot. My grandmother has been a huge fan of my husband. And then we had lunch the other day. She's 95 and she's starting to get very confused. And he got up at our lunch to go to the bathroom and she goes, have you two been going together for long? And I was oh. like, oh, I know. It was so sad. I was like, yeah, you know what, Gaggy, we're... We're married. And she's like, oh, you are not. And I said, yes, we are. And she said, if you were married, I would have been at the wedding. And I said, you were at the wedding. And she's like, well, I'm very confused because I see you wearing a wedding ring, but there's no way you married him. Anyway, it was very sad. (gasps) That's sweet. I know. It's sad, but sweet. 
anyway. It is so sweet. What a tough thing. Yeah. The, anyway, I'm glad. I, she, I'm glad she. The two of them are are big fans, despite you know. Yeah. The religion <laughs> roadblock at the beginning. Yeah. Well, I I bring up the pregnancy because I, I I finished the final draft while four months pregnant with my son, and so I was I would write and barf. this is the first trimester of a pregnancy and I had this deadline. And so I would write and just like eat plain pasta and crackers and made it through. Wow. And so the book is dedicated to both my grandmother and, and my son because I wrote it for and containing both of them in a, in an odd way. Wow. (laughs) Are you like over writing books or do you think you'll write another one or are you already writing another one? Yeah, I'm already writing another one. I love writing books. It ended up being something that flowed, this book flowed naturally naturally and, and readily from me just because I'm so close to this character and this voice. And so I realized, well, look, I'm a fraud. I'm not a real writer. I just write in voices. Why don't I just pick some more characters to write from? And so that's what I'm doing in my next book. Oh, I love it. Um, can, yeah. you, can you share who the character is? I don't want to say too much about it just because it's still changing, but I'm writing right now from the perspective of a nine-year-old girl, and it's the most fun I've had writing. And I'm, I have a stack of camp letters that I wrote my parents when I was nine. I wrote a ton of letters every day. My parents recently gave them to me, and I'm, I'm working backwards from those. Bess, I have a big, like, tup, not Tupperware, what's it called, container full of my camp letters from when I was nine. So if you need any additional information, my mother also <laughs> recently was like, I'm cleaning out my, I'm cleaning out your old room. Take all your letters. So I have them all. And yeah, I'm glad you're doing that. <laughs> we should talk about that at some point if I run out of material. Yeah, if you run out of material. Yeah, use my camp traumas to <laughs> enlighten you. Well, I know you've already included a lot of great advice for aspiring authors, but do you have any last minute words of wisdom as opposed to, in addition to, you know, building up the muscle and dealing with the blinking cursor and all the rest? (laughs) Yeah, I don't, I mean, I, I think I don't have the answers. I just know what's worked for me and what's worked for me is to write all the time and write every day in some form. We don't all have the luxury of being able to do that, especially juggling so many things with, with motherhood. And, you know, moms don't have time to read. Moms don't have time to write. Yet we do all of it. We do read and we do write. And I think the way to do it is just to set aside a little bit of time every day, even if it's five minutes, to see what comes out. Some days there'll be nothing. Some days there'll be four times as much as what you had. I think setting aside that time for yourself is so crucial because maybe your next book will come out of that. I love that. Well, thank you so much for coming on Moms No Time to Read Books. And thank you for doing that Instagram Live and being the first person I'm doing an online book club with and all the rest. And uh, I hope that we get to meet in person sometime because I feel like we could trade camp stories and lots of other stories. So, <laughs> Thank you so much, Sibby. Thank you so much for your shout out on Good Morning America as well. I screamed. It was so exciting. Thank you to all of your listeners for supporting women who write and being in this together with us. And it's just great to be here and talk to you. Oh, you too. All right. Thanks. Thank you. Bye, Bess. Thank you for your patience. Of course. No problem. (laughs) Bye. You've been listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books with Zibby Owens. Please make sure to sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com to get more updates about episodes like these and also lots of live events. 
Thanks again to Good Pods for sponsoring this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. You can follow me on Instagram at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You could always email me at zibby at zibbyowens.com. Thank you.